I got a lot of pollen on my shirt today. <laughs> the heedless king, First Kings, chapter 14. You think about these apostate kings. You, you begin to feel pretty good about yourself. I mean, compared to Jeroboam, I'm obedient. And compared to Rehoboam, I'm a genius. But it doesn't work that way. That is material to preach to the lost souls who think highly of themselves. Ah, not so bad as people go. Yeah, it's, but it's not you that you're going to be. You're not going to be judged by people according to people. Romans 2.16, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. It's deliberate. It's carved in stone. We are going to be judged by Jesus Christ. He's the standard. And if you can't live up to that standard, you're done. Unless your sins have been covered, washed away, uh, covered as in uh, taken care of by the Lamb of God. Because remember, the Old Testament, the sins were covered. The New Testament, they are removed. John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Uh, so, a very... Uh, Significant language. Verse 14, or verse 1 of, <laughs> that would have been fast. Uh, verse 1, chapter 14, 1 Kings. At that time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Well, where it says, at that time, this is during the days when Jeroboam was at the altar at Bethel, the man of God was dispatched to deal with him and that altar, that chapter 13. And so that's what that is talking. Uh, so around this time, the significance is Jeroboam is unfazed by all that took place at that altar. The miraculous, the altars, you know, uh, the rebuke, the hand being paralyzed and then restored. And, and it just didn't phase him. And that's the significant. He was heedless to the message, unmoved by the miracles. Here he is, still uh, going to be engaged in idolatrous practices and disrespecting God right to his face. It says, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. Now, both Jeroboam and Rehoboam had a son named Abijah, and so we just have to live with that. But again, these opening words connect the sickness of the son with Jeroboam's impenitence, his refusal to repent. He still wants something from God, verse 2. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Please arise and disguise yourself, that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh, indeed, Ahijah, the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. Well, Jeroboam says to his wife, please arise. Now, Bethel is not where he lived. He lived in Shechem, but he either had a summer home in Terza or moved there. We'll find that out later. But that's where he is right now, in Terza. Solomon said Terza was a very beautiful place. It's included in the Song of Solomon in chapter 6. And he has no shame, as we've already observed, sinning against God. But yet he wants to hide his desperate need for this God to help him out uh, without repentance. I, he wants something from God. It's a one-way, you know, I just want something from you and just get out of my face. And a lot of people live that way. 
He doesn't want anyone, including the prophet whom he is sending his wife to, to recognize that they're going to Yahweh for help. How does someone suppose that they can approach God through deception? How does a person think that they can deceive God? Well, the first part of that is their view of deity is defective. It's, It's deficient. They also suppose God is like them. God is made in their image. You know, that's what idolatry is. Instead of being made in the image of God, you make gods in the image that you find uh, acceptable. That's Psalm 115, for example, points, points that out. Those who make them are like them, because man cannot think beyond himself and without, without God. Their view of God is irreverent, and in the truest sense of the word, it is profane. It is away from the sacred. It is insulting. And here he admits that the prophet Ahijah told him he would be king, prophesied it. He became king of the ten tribes, just as it was said. And yet he refuses to even mention God's name. The way these things are recorded, they're intentional. It's not that the writer just, you know, uh, whatever the writer was thinking, or uh, the, the, the spiritual scribe, God is thinking beyond that, knowing that we will come later on and look at his word and, and, and notice these things because they are there to be noticed. And see, here he is in dire need. He turns to the only true God. Why not his idols? Why doesn't he go up to Bethel or Dan? Why not go to the, the golden calves he had put there instead? This was something, you know, the the prophets, they just had to deal with this. Just like we have to deal with this broke generation, you know, it's just, they had to deal with this stuff too and suffer alongside of them. Jeremiah 2, 28, Jeremiah is speaking to these people who have these fake gods. He says, but where are your gods that you have made for yourselves? Let them arise, if they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. So he sends his wife, this king, to the god he refuses to obey and bow down to, gross hypocrisy, and uh, took, of course, Yahweh's prophet, Ahijah, not Now the boy's name, the prince that's sick, is Abijah, and this is Ahijah. And I'm sure you you need to have that pointed out. Anyway, um, he wants his his child is facing death, and he wants him healed. Apparently, God does not approve of kings disguising themselves. Now, here, he is having his wife disguise herself, but it is by his order. King Saul disguised himself. And both Samuel and the witch at Endor realized it was him. The disguise only went but so far. The wicked king Ahab, he disguised himself in battle, saying to the gullible king Jehoshaphat, who was a righteous king, but he just hung out with the wrong people, got the wrong crowd, almost killed him a couple of times. Anyway, he was hoping that he would, you know, I'll put my camis on, you put this bullseye on. I mean, your kingly robes. And, of course, it almost got Jehoshaphat killed. He cried out to the Lord. And an archer at a venture randomly just fires the arrow, and it hits 
the wicked king Ahab, which he, he then died from those wounds. The godly king Josiah also interfering with Pharaoh Necho, coming you know, in, in, into the region to, with, against the Assyrians. And, and Josiah is going to make a name for himself and throw himself into the battle. And he disguises himself. He puts on you know, his utility uniform to face the enemy and is killed in battle. And so it, 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 there are lessons there. God not liking the leaders to disguise themselves. Be who I made you. Be who I appointed you to be. I, I think that's one of the great lessons that, that comes out of it. And, and here it is. He's going to be revealed. He's not going to get away with this. His wife is disguising her, herself on his behalf. And, of course, the prophet's going to call him out on it. In verse 3, also take with you ten loaves, some cakes, a jar of honey, and go to him. He will tell you what will become of the child. It's just the insanity of, of sin, what sin does to a human being. This man knows that the prophet can see the future because God tells him. You would think you would say, okay, that's going to be my God. Uh, people come to the Bible and they read it. Yeah, I, I, I see it. I, I can't dispute it. And they still don't become believers sometimes. These um, gifts that she brings are common gifts. They're not gifts fitting for a queen to give to someone. It was, we discussed this last chapter, it wasn't uncommon for people to bring gifts to the prophets. Remember, uh, Naaman comes and he has these gifts for Elijah, and he turns them down and Gehazi goes for them. But, um, so you, you say, well, are they cheapskates? Or are they staying in character where they don't want someone to notice? You know, if they brought good gifts, <laughs> the prophet would say, well, who are you behind this disguise to afford such a gift? And that's probably what's, what's going on. Uh, either way, he says here, and he will tell you what will become of the child. And again, you, you just, duh. Then how come you don't serve this guy, this, this, this man's God? Well, this is common grace, the common grace that belongs to the wicked and the righteous alike. If without this, civilization could not function. Uh, wicked human beings can do good things. Wicked human beings can do good things to people they choose to do good things or not. Uh, relatively decent people who are not going to heaven exist. Uh, decent as far as the terms of society. Again, common grace as opposed to special grace, which is the receiving the salvation by special revelation, which is, of course, through the Holy Spirit and God's word. So this, um, he, he's concerned for his child as a, as a loving parent, and that's common grace. And it doesn't diminish it. It doesn't mean it's, you know, small or anything like that. It's, it's again, society could not function without it. Verse 4, And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now, we know that this is the same Ahijah the prophet because he already told us this is the one that prophesied. He's living in Shiloh. And we wonder, as she is on her way, you know, what kind of woman she was. We're not told. It's about a 20-mile trek from Terza to Shiloh. Did she protest? Did she want to stay with the child? Uh, again, we, we don't know. But um, 
Either way, she has little choice, and Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age, likely cataracts. Her disguise is, going, is not going to hide her from God's man because of God. And, of course, the story, the greater part, he doesn't need eyes to see if God is, again, giving him the knowledge. The two reasons why this prophet in Shiloh was not dispatched to Bethel. Well, he was, uh, by reason of his age and his eyesight, he was just hindered from, from going, and so God imported the prophet from Judah um, to, to go, bypassing the old prophet of Bethel who was there in the city. A lot of challenging information for us, because every Christian wants to say to God what Paul said when he was converted, who are you, what do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? What would you have me to do? That, that just encapsulates the, the Christian response to Jesus Christ at conversion. Here's my life. What do you want from me? And not in, a, not in a challenging, what do you want from me? But, Lord, here I am. Hopefully a vessel of honor. Verse 5. Now Yahweh had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. <laughs> well, there's a lot there. Some humorous stuff. We won't go into that because I can get to my truck safely. Um, the, the prophet is the one that traffics spiritual information from God. The false prophet traffics it from hell. And here he is, of course, a true prophet. And God is speaking, and he's speaking through the prophet. Uh, he has something directly or direct to say. Nothing indirect in this, not a general statement. It is to Jeroboam and his wife. The poor woman doesn't know what awaits her deception. Uh, what she's going to hear is not because she's come to deceive. That's just uh, more evidence of their shallowness. But... Uh, she doesn't know what she's getting into. Now, this is the gift of knowledge. It's not the only place it shows up in the scripture. Uh, the gift has not so much to do with learning information, but knowing something that you could not know unless God revealed it. That is the gift of knowledge. So if you go to a church and the pastor is very knowledgeable about the Bible, that's not the gift. That's hard work. Knowledge comes in his insights and the ability to see things that others aren't seeing because God has told him. Uh, and it doesn't have to be, you know, astounding. It has to be useful. Sometimes it is astounding. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. You know, the guy that just says the right thing in a situation where nobody seems to be able to catch that. And the Holy Spirit gives that person that, that right word. Many times they don't even know it. They just say it, and it's, it's God. To another, the word of knowledge, through the same Spirit. And so Paul spoke of these things like the, as though they were common to Christianity. Of course, the abuses make everyone afraid of gifts. So whole denominations have just written them off as they've all ceased, except the ones they like, like teaching. They, you know, he's a gifted teacher. Well, how come he can't be gifted in other things too? Because those have ceased. We don't like them. They're abused. Uh, I, anyway, you have to be careful. I don't think we can uh, 
it's very unwise to be possessive of any gift that God gives. Ephesians 3.3, 3, How by revelation he made known to me the mystery that I have briefly written already. So there's Paul saying, God made known to me the mystery. That's the gift of knowledge. He doesn't say, well, I have the gift of knowledge. And God told me he does it very in a more classy way. Again, he writes to the Colossians, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's broader there because Daniel said in latter days, knowledge will increase. And he's not speaking so much about spiritual knowledge as he is about uh, just knowledge and knowing things. And we, we've seen this with through the, um, I guess, it probably really began to take hold of the steam engine being invented and the inventions just just continued. I don't know, some hundred, a couple of hundred thousand patents filed for during the Civil War. People were just inventing stuff left and right to, to, to go ahead and kill other people, albeit. But uh, man has, of course, increased in knowledge and look where we are, are today. Uh, the, one of the biggest threats to this generation's youth is the influence of social media and the internet. Well, that the computer world has, has brought us this. There's good things on there, and there are bad, we know. Anyway, um, if you were to say to someone, well, for instance, Micah the prophet says, He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. This is a revelation from God, you know, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk with your God in, in humility, which is what the Bible teaches from the beginning to the end. But <clears throat> there are other times... When you say, how do you know that? Well, God has shown me. And this is an example. What does it look like in the Bible when someone has not the gift of knowledge when it would have been useful? Well, we're going to get two in the same section. This was, uh, Gehazi was a servant of the prophet Elisha. And uh, he was, of course, um, he doesn't, he fails, but... (laughs) The, the, here, one of the mothers, uh, the Shulamite woman, her son dies. So she goes to the prophet to get him to heal the child. Now, when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet. But Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress. And Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. So there you have, Gehazi doesn't know what's going on. The man of God knows something is happening, but God has not yet revealed it to him. And then there is the scene uh, after Elijah, comes Elisha, the prophet, when Naaman comes and uh, is healed of his leprosy. Uh, He wants to bring the, the prophet gifts. The prophet turns them down. And then we pick it up in 2 Kings 5. Then he said to him, uh, well, let me back it up before I read this. So Elijah says, Elisha says, I don't want the gifts. The, Naaman heads home with his entourage. Gehazi says, those are some really nice things he just turned down, and I'm going to get some. And he goes behind, and to Naaman catches up, oh, my master changed his mind. And he takes the garments and whatever else he took, and he's, he hides it, and he comes back to serve the prophet. That's when we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 26. Then he said to him, the prophet speaking to Gehazi, Did not my heart go with you when the, man of, when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? 
Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves, vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? So he, he, he knew that Gehazi had done this because God told him. And so there are some examples. There are others, but those two should suffice. And here we're seeing it in Ahijah, the gift of knowledge. Uh, we don't have to wait to get to the Old Testament to see the gifts in operation. What happens is in the New Testament, they all converge on Jesus Christ directly. In the Old Testament, it was maintaining the kingdom righteous so the Messiah could have a, a kingdom to come in fulfillment of the prophecies. Those prophecies are critical so that the unbelievers could, would have less ammunition. That's why Peter said, we have more sure word of prophecy. You can track these things. We get to the New Testament, and God says, okay, we've settled this. Now, everything is for the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Holy Spirit testifying, not on his own authority, but Jesus Christ, uh, uh, exalting the Christ. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. All right, well, verse 6, And so it was, when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps, as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Well, Jeroboam sends his wife, to, <laughs> and he calls her out. He can't see her. That's made clear. And she, she's got it. How humiliating, you know. She probably says, no, it's not me. <laughs> or no, it's not me, or something. Uh, she probably doesn't say anything. She's just mortified. And... Uh, uh, so Jeroboam sent his wife to Ahijah. But Ahijah says that he was sent to her. For I have been sent to you with bad news at the bottom of verse 6. She traveled to him. But he was sent to her without traveling to her, without moving. And that God is just ahead of everything. And so, you know, these, these small views of God... They, they, they ruin the soul. The Christian has a big view of God. God is magnified. He's not made bigger. He's just seen as being bigger than what uh, the unbeliever sees. With bad news. So he braces her for God's judgment that's coming. Verse 7. And uh, the, the implications of the story are that she's an idolater too. There's nothing in here that uh, puts her in a good light. There, the way he speaks to her is, uh, well, he's going to say it. He's going to come out and say, there's only one good thing, one, one good person in your family, and you're not it, sister. And we'll come to that. Verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus says Yahweh, God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people, verse 8, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. Again, we've covered this. David had moral struggles as everybody else, but he never had a spirit. He was never confused about God's identity, his spiritual identity as a believer in Yahweh. Uh, never even a hiccup there. But um, <clears throat> as to who God was, this... Um, where it says in verse 7, go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord. The prophet is saying, I want you to be clear about this. This is not my opinion. This is God. This is what's going to happen. It is prophetic. And uh, God is reminding the wicked king, 
just who put him on the throne. You'd think that would mean something. Even with just an unbeliever, that can register. Yeah, you know what? I, I do have some allegiance to, to you for helping me out. I mean, how, who makes it to the top of anything without a hook, without somebody at the top dropping a hook down and picking them up? Uh, I, I mean, they're mentors. I, I think most of it, when you hear somebody say, I'm a self-made man, you're a self-made fool because you, you're missing it. And, but you, you're conveniently missing it. We all uh, benefit from somebody's influence, somebody opening doors for us. Uh, well, anyway, like Jeroboam, they have a short memory and a selective one to go with it. Um, God is saying, I gave him the power he cherished. He cherishes. And he did. Jeroboam said, well, I can't have them going back to Israel. I've got to stay in power. They'll kill me. When, what, you know, it's just, just crazy reasoning that went along with that. But once again, God is gypped. That's what the Lord is saying through the prophet. I've been cheated out of my investment. I invested in this man. I gave him every opportunity to have a Davidic-type dynasty in the north. And this is what I got. Gypped again. So... The righteous person will say, well, God is investing in me. I don't want to jip him. I want to give a return on his investment. Thus, you know, the t- parables of the talents. God's investment. Will you bury it or do you invest it? It takes courage to invest a t- talent. And, uh, you know, God says in the book of Revelation, the cowards won't enter in. Someone afraid to make the decision to come to Christ. Well, then you, you don't get the salvation. It takes courage. Uh, anyway, God got nothing good in return from this king, not even a speck of, ad, of gratitude or obedience, just a disguised wife trying to get a blessing. It says here in verse 8, and, gave it, uh, and I gave it to you. Uh, he, with such an honor and opportunity, you would think he would have been faithful. And yet you have not been as my servant David. What That was a chop in the face. This is what Samuel said to Saul when God had, uh, you know, rebuked him for being, said, you're not going to be king anymore. I'm going to find someone else. So Samuel said to him, Yahweh has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, to a neighbor of yours. And here it comes. Who is better than you? How? That's got to hurt. Who would want to hear that? There's better than you. You would think that. Saul would have fallen on his face, groveling before the Lord. Uh, Didn't do that. He just got violent. Anyway, verse 9. But you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. This is, man, this prophet Ahijah, he's serious. God is speak. When God speaks to these men, he speaks to using their personality. That's why Ezekiel is just such an amazing guy. He's so kind of a weirdo. But his points, when I say weirdo, he's not common, because I'm going to meet him one day. Hey, (laughs) he might want to beat me up. Uh, But anyway, he was odd, No, no question about it. The sarcasms. I have a file, you know, all the wicked people of the Bible. I have another file, you know, all of this of the Bible. And I have a bunch of these files on my computer. Uh, the transition from writing them on index cards to the computer is brutal. Anyway, uh, I was talking about broccoli, wasn't I? 
completely lost it. Anyway, uh, and it was going to be really good. It had come to me. Just give me a... Oh, so, so this other file... <laughs> you're messing with me. <laughs> sarcasm. All the sarcasm, not all of it, but sarcasm. And there's a lot of it. And we're coming up on, on one in a, in a little bit. Uh, but we'll, we'll hit verse 9 and then I'll, I'll, I'll bring it back up. But you have done more evil, verse 9, than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods molded image. Okay, I read that. I, I know. These... Uh, this doesn't move Jeroboam. When she takes the message back and tells the prophet, uh, tells her husband what the prophet said, uh, it, it, he's going to be unfazed. He's determined to reject God and still try to get something from him. Apostates, <coughs> apostates make themselves irretrievable. It's not God. It's them. Uh, Pharaoh uh, with uh, Moses. He made himself irretrievable. These guys were already up to no good. That's why the Jews had to be taken out of there. They were killing them. And enslaving them. So it's not like, oh, you know, Pharaoh, God just hardened his heart. No, that's the language used, but the facts speak for themselves. Anyway, the molten images, those golden calves from chapter 12, we have in Psalm 115, Isaiah 44, and Jeremiah 10, God making mockery of the lunacy that accompanies idolatry. Those are just three of the places. I mean, what, one of the prophets said, what is this? You, you, you chop down a tree and you carve a little bit out for your God and you take another piece, you heat the fire with it and you make another piece, piece of fur. What, what, is, what is that? You're bowing down to this thing? It's the created being worshiping a created thing. And, of course, true worship is the uncreated, self-existent, eternal God. And that is the grand distinction between the lost and the saved, the true and the false. Verse 14, we'll come back to sarcasm still. We're coming to it right now, as a matter of fact. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. Well, the promises, God said, I'll give you a dynasty. Now he's saying that's off. That deal is done. Here's the, here is the sarcasm. As one takes away manure, manure, sorry, <laughs> manure, until it is all gone. That's the Hebrew word. Actually, the Hebrew is a little bit more graphic. It's a little bit more, the imagery is, belongs to it. Uh, so this is, there's some serious language here. Uh, it's, it's not crass or anything like that. It's just to the point. He said, this is, you're damning souls, and this is what you've become like. Refuse, dung, and uh, waste removal. Baasha the king, who will, he will wipe out the family of Jeroboam, the survivors. You get that in chapter 15, uh, next chapter. Anyway, verse 11. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for Yahweh has spoken. Man, this prophet, he's just letting it out. This uh, judgment is amongst the curses itemized in Deuteronomy 28 for disobedience. So it's not like, oh, well, this is kind of harsh. We didn't see this coming. No, it's in the Bible. And uh, as king, uh, you are going to be a happy meal for scavengers. Uh, That's what's going to happen. Jehu will come along who also will have a 
be, God will invest in Jehu, and he's going to turn crazy too. Jehu's the one that had Jezebel killed. Uh, any of you eunuchs up there with me? Yeah, well, throw her down. Okay. And, and <laughs> you got to kind of like Jehu a little bit until you get to the religious side and his departure. Anyway, uh, Elijah spoke the same thing to, to Ahab. So it's, it's not the only place it takes place. It, it is a shameful judgment upon the recipient. Verse 12, Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. Well, the king's palace, we get that in verse 17, is evidently on the city wall at the city entrance. And as soon as she steps in, the, the judgment is, uh, that will happen. Verse 13, And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because... In him there is found something good toward Yahweh God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Well, that's pretty heavy. He's the only thing, good thing about your house. I'm taking him to heaven. That's what's going on here. Uh, and the people, when he says all Israel will mourn for him, that was the, they had a hope for this, this crown prince, and it was, would be quenched. For he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave. He spared the scavengers. He spared the wrath of God. He spared seeing the wrath of God take place on the house of Jeroboam. He doesn't have to go through the judgments uh, that uh, the rest of his family members will live through. Uh, this will be the same way with King Josiah, that, that good king. Second uh, Kings chapter 22, verse 20. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. Now, I know that's, going to, that's a big question mark because he died on the battlefield. But uh, relative to what the context of what's being said, he is not seeing the violence of the kingdom stripped away. Uh, Josiah is not. So it is, we'll get to that when we get to Second Kings. But anyway, he says, And your eyes shall not see all the calamity. See, there's the context, which I will bring on this place. Uh, and, and that's the prophecy that was issued to Josiah that he would be spared seeing the judgments and that's what's really happening to this unnamed crown prince of Jeroboam. He says, because in him is found something good toward Yahweh, God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. So he's the exception in the evil house. And God is very sure to point, careful to point this out and preserve it over the centuries, the millennium. Uh, we tend to think that premature, by our standards, premature death, death of the young, is a great loss. And it is to us in this life. There's no, no question about that. But God has a, a different views about things because he's got a greater view, of course, of everything and eternity. And here, in evil times, death is a reward to the righteous. Um, more of an evacuation of a soul than the loss of a soul. Isaiah 57, the righteous perishes and no one takes it to heart. These are the evil times that he was addressing. Merciful men are taken away while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. So he kind of just ties it all in together to the, to the eternal because eternity has been put in our hearts. And without that eternal view, you're lost. With the eternal view, there, there is God, uh, ideally. So if heaven is the most fitting place for anyone, God is simply saying, I'm taking him to the, the most fitting place. 
uh, child or adult, either way, the world is not worthy of them. Uh, God is not intimidated by death. We are, because death is our enemy. It is our last enemy, the Bible says. And it will not be finalized until, of course, the, the return of Christ. Well, of course, if we go home to heaven, but on earth. And God always has eternity in view. Always. Uh, I mean, how else could he allow his son to go to the cross? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, Jesus wasn't just throwing that in to fill up his sermon. It's a very, it was one of the biggest parts of the Beatitudes. I like, you know, you know, blessed are the merciful, they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be full. Yeah, they will, but they're going to take a lot of hits. Uh, so you should know that, unless you become disillusioned. He says, because in him there is found something good toward Yahweh God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. God is not only, con- uh, well, I'll say it this way. God is not overly concerned with those who are going to heaven. They're saved. And that means something with him. He, again, he's bigger than death. And he's going to improve not only their life, but their lifestyle. And he knows it. And this is the case with Uzzah, who touched the ark when he should not have. Uriah, who David had, had killed. The Bethlehem innocents, who Herod had killed. Uh, Antipas, as God said, my faithful servant. They're in heaven. They went right to heaven. Well, they, uh, the Old Testament ones, they had a uh, carryover. <laughs> like you do at a flight, a stopover. Uh, anyway, no direct flight for them. But for the New Testament believer, it is a direct flight. One pastor from long ago said, said this about God. He is never touched with the pity of those who die. It is for those who live. And, I, of course, in its context, that is, that is very accurate. Verse 14. Moreover, Yahweh will rise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. Uh, this is the day. What? Even now. So he's a little, you've got some personality there. These guys weren't boring like me. Uh, I mean, no, wait. No, I said that wrong. Like me, they weren't boring. The other way sounds like they weren't boring as I am boring. We know that would be. Anyhow. <laughs> so, uh, well, this uh, 14, moreover, Yahweh will rise up for himself a king. Oh, he's plenty of choices. Nadab, Jeroboam's son, will reign for two years, but he will be assassinated by Baasha, and Baasha is a foul character too. They all are. All the north, all the bloody kings of the, of the north remind us of the bloody Caesars of Rome. Verse fifteen, and Yahweh will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers, and will scatter. Them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images provoking Yahweh to anger. Well, this was big to them. For us, you know, how many times have you heard a Christian say, boy, where's America in the prophecies of the Bible? Why is America owed a place in the Bible? Who says, I mean, there are a lot of places. Why should America get one? Or what about, you know, Mozambique or Tappanzee, New Jersey? I mean, they're just, well, that's New York, anyway. Uh, just, you know... We would like to know things. Well, in those days, they were they were knowing those things, and they weren't good. So now the prophecy shifts from Jeroboam's house to 
all the northern uh, in that region. Shaking the reed, a metaphor for the destabilization. Uh, the prophet sees 200 years in advance. There will be about that much time uh, before these things happen. They will be scattered in exile, as he references here, uh, to, uh, to the Euphrates, east to the Euphrates River. And we'll see this in 2 Kings 17 fulfilled. Verse 16, And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, who sinned, who made Israel sin. Well, uh, God is saying, you know, they have no intention of obeying him. They keep provoking him, which is an interesting study all by itself. Uh, well, if you have no intention of obeying me, God says, I have no intention of protecting you. He's still talking to the, to the wife. Uh, the sandcastle religion just cannot withstand the tide of truth. And uh, unfortunately, people find out too late. He made Jeroboam Israel sin by not, not by filling the northern kingdom with saloons, but with idols. And that's how he did it. Lies about the only true God. Verse 17. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terza. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. He went to heaven. In verse 18. We know that because God said he found good in him. Verse 18. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through his servant Ahijah the prophet. So again, God's saying this was not a random death. I called it, and there's why I called it. And, uh, uh, and with all this evidence, they're going to just deny the Lord nonetheless. They just have this inability to connect dots. It's like we don't like where number 26 takes us. So we're going to connect number 25 with number 9. And they have this Picasso they end up with that they're boasting about as they go to hell. That is a picture of what uh, irreverent man does. It just will not connect the dots. You know, a scientist is so true to science, you know, uh, or even math, mathematics. Two plus two is always four. There is no exception. You can travel to Mars uh, uh, with Hubble, and it's, it's still going to be two plus two is four. And yet, they're going to tell you all about evolution as being science when there's no proof and it's just, it just takes your breath away that, man, these guys are really smart in a lot of areas. They even invent stuff we all benefit from. But when it comes to God, they're morons. They are spiritual morons because there's a real devilish influence and they won't get away from it. Anyhow, you know, I'm sitting in Starbucks, many of them, right now. I'm, I'm not saying Starbucks is evil, and I'm not saying it's not evil. <laughs> okay. Verse 19. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Throughout the books of the kings, God refers to Jeroboam as the standard of the evil king in the north. As David was elevated as the righteous king, he is elevated as the king that led Israel, the northern kingdom, into sin. Now, again, back to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 16 he slams Jerusalem. I mean, he, he gets everybody, but he really says, you know, man, what Judah did with Jerusalem. So nobody can go, there's no backslapping going on here about who got it right. They were all a mess. No less than 22 direct reminders 
about Jeroboam leading the north into sin. In other words, God, not only was he paying attention, he's, he's got a grudge, spiritually speaking, is a rap sheet on this king. Uh, and it is uh, significant. And if you do a study just on the name of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, you 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 astounded how the writers just keep saying he led Israel into sin. It was this guy. And it was this is the son of the guy, which <laughs> is very like Judas Iscariot, uh, you know, son of Simon. They very man brought the dad down with him. Serious business. Well, uh, why should a soul be taken into heaven when they're given every chance to submit to God and they refuse? I mean, this is reason. This is reasoning with a person that thinks, I'm a good person, I'm going to heaven, or, you know, just stupid sayings like, you know, heaven doesn't want me and hell's afraid I'll take away. You're, you're, again, what do you, you could tell yourself whatever you want, but it's not going to tone down the temperature of the flames. Uh, it is serious stuff. It is not a joke. And if you think mocking with irreverence religion and God is somehow going to insulate you from what's coming, you're a bigger fool than you look like. Um, anyway, well, I can have some sarcasm, too. <laughs> of course, we're not, <laughs> we're not encouraged to be sarcastic like the prophets because it can get away from you very quickly, uh, for, for you. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, does not God, a God, if the, he is God, does he not have the right to dictate terms? I mean, what is so complicated about that? The man who made Israel sin. That's what it says. Second uh, Kings 17.21. Jeroboam drove Israel from following Yahweh and made them commit a great sin. Man, that's pretty strong. This is his legacy. This is what he left behind. Compared to, you know, a Barnabas or, a, or Ruth. This is what Jeroboam left behind. It's a good question to ask somebody that's irreverent like this. 2 Kings 13.11, all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin. And we just read it again and again and again. It's, just, it's like, we're not going to let you forget this one. Um, anyway, anyway, the father of ruining the northern kingdoms. That's, that's his legacy. Verse 20, the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. I mean, we're having a hard time getting past these four that we're faced with. I mean, where is Laurel and Hardy when you need them? That would be an improvement. Anyhow, uh, the period that Jeroboam reigned 22 years, so he rested with his fathers, and Nabat, his son, reigned in his place. Um, Proverbs 3, verse 35. The wise shall inherit glory, but... Shame shall be the legacy of fools, and, and that, is, that is it. His father is associated with him 13 times, and all of it negative. Verse 21, and Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, <clears throat> reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which Yahweh had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. His mother's name was Naamah and Ammonitus. Now, uh, there's a lot here, but we don't have time to open it all. Not a lot. Uh, there's a lot of interesting things here. Um, it, his son will reign for, for three years, a relatively short time. We'll get him next chapter. Uh, there's nothing to really point out that I'm just wasting time looking for something to point out. <laughs> verse verse four, 22. 
Well, I can say this. He tells us he's 41 when he became king. That's when he ruined the nation. So he couldn't say, well, I was too young to make a right decision. Verse 22. Now Judah did evil in the sight of Yahweh, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers had done. And so now, of course, the, the story turns towards the south, and the Judean kings pointing out their spiritual uh, <clears throat> discrepancies. This jealousy, provoking God to jealousy, well, protective jealousy is not the same as the jealousy born out of envy. Uh, jealousy in this sense is it belongs to God. If, if I have something that belongs to me, then I am protective of that, and that's the type of jealousy being spoken of here. Whereas envy is, well, it doesn't belong to me, and I'm going, I want it, I'm going to do whatever I can to, to keep it, to take it, or to get whatever. Uh, so we should understand, when the Bible says God is a jealous God, that is an honorable thing. He is saying, I am going to protect what is mine, what is rightfully mine. And that is what it's in the Hebrew, and that's what it is in context, and that's what it means. And not this, you know, jealous lover that if I can't have you, nobody's going to have you. That's just sin. Anyway, uh, more than all their fathers had done, they grew worse and worse through the centuries. Again, if you, ha- if you can get through Ezekiel 16, it's a very long chapter. It's pretty hard-hitting. Verse 23, For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars, wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. So uh, uh, they were invested in disgraceful things. They were disgraceful because they were lies. And they didn't care that they were lies. They are doing what God forbade in broad daylight. Bold-faced sinners, people of the, the chosen people, chosen to produce Messiah, shameless, brazen, idle infestation everywhere. Verse 24, and there were also perverted persons in the land. Oh, now he's talking about America. <laughs> this uh, and everywhere else. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which Yahweh had cast out before the children of Israel. These are consecrated, these perverted persons are consecrated males, mostly the sexually impure part of their rights. Uh, the reason why we know that is because they make distinctions between the harlots and, and these perverted persons. It's one of the reasons. There are other two, but... Essentially, that's uh, the, the false gods bring perversity. And we're seeing that uh, today. Um, you know, anyway, Satan is always at it. They embraced this idolatry. It was widespread. And there's no remedy at this point. Second Chronicles 36. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people till there was no remedy. Second Chronicles 36, verse 16. Uh, that can happen. It does happen. It did happen. And it's going to still happen. Uh, they learned fake religion from the kingdoms they defeated. I said, I never got that. I mean, you would think that if you're the conqueror, your God must be having, you know, the side to be on unless there's a reason. Uh, so, the, the, I just, anyway. Verse 25, it happened in the fifth year, year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. Well, God gave Rehoboam three years. For three years, he was relatively stable. But the brew was 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 
was there. Um, and he, he's going to turn away. Egypt knew that the kingdom was defi- divided and that the northern half, well, Jeroboam was there, and Jeroboam had been in exile in Egypt, so he knew that wasn't going to be a problem, so he just came in and took what he wanted. Uh, the, the Jeroboam, Rehoboam, was notorious in Scripture for being weak. His son Asa, when he comes to power, he's going to say to Jeroboam, yeah, my dad was weak, but I'm not. And he's going to put a whooping on Jeroboam for that. Uh, anyway, uh, and we'll be coming to that in the story. Second Chronicles chapter 12. Then Shemaiah the prophet came to Rehoboam and the leaders of Judah who were gathered together in Jerusalem because of Shishak, and said to them, Thus says Yahweh, You have forsaken me, and therefore I also have left you in the hand of Shishak by the seashore. I, you can't help it. Anyway, verse 26, He took away the treasures of the house of Yahweh and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. And the two candelabras. No, no, he uh, But he, he takes the gold shields. That Solomon had, you know, we talked about these shields. They were beautiful. They were solid gold. And uh, the enemy has made off with the gold of devotion. Man, it's a lesson in that. And so he makes brass shields to replace them. You know what the New Testament says about brass and the negative sounding brass, clanging cymbals. That's the way Paul described the Christian who does their duty without love. They're just this annoying thing. They're not gold. They're brass. The enemy has made off with the gold. Uh, Anyway, verse 27. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. Now, this is the stuff you make topical sermons on. There's a lot here. Here he is settling for less. And in this case, it is a shameful less. Uh, they tried to keep up appearances with, with uh, you know, this make-believe. They, 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 they were still successful. Someone told me years ago, I, I don't know if it's so true of banks now. When I was a kid, you went, went into a bank, and man, the floors were marble. Everything was like, well, this is like a palace in here. And uh, banks wanted to give, and they probably still do, this impression that we have a lot of money, we make money. And if you have money, we'll make you more money. Uh, this is the impression that the, the banks were to, were to give. I've been to a few banks and chipped up furniture. and You know what? You guys are not keeping up with the Joneses down the... You're going to be the second national bank you keep this up. Anyway, uh, and whenever the king, verse 28, entered the house of Yahweh, the guards carried them and brought them back into the guard room. So the color guard, boy, you should have been here in the old days. We had gold shields. Now we've got brass. Uh, The the special treasures of the previous generations. There's a pattern that emerges in the Bible, and maybe in real life too. These cheap substitutes. uh, It's like life was going on with them and nobody knew the difference. Forget about the gold shields. We've got these nice bronze ones. Bronze ones now. The glory has departed. So if you look around, you'll see first it's not gold, it's not silver, it's number three. It's bronze. The first generation fights for the faith. 
builds a church, starts a church from ground, the ground up. The second generation assumes that church in faith and continues it. The pattern that begins to emerge is that the third generation abandons the faith. Well, you can say, well, that's just a, a clinical view. That's an observation you have. Can you show me anything in Scripture that warns us that this pattern exists? Well, Rehoboam represents the third generation of the Davidic dynasty. David, Solomon, Rehoboam. And if you look at, uh, in the book of Judges, in chapter 2, it, I'm not going to turn there, we're just out of time, but chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, comes right out and said the generation stayed true where Joshua was on the throne and the men that were under Joshua, that second generation, but that third one is when they began to tear down what the others had worked on so hard. What a challenge to you. And there aren't many youth here tonight, but uh, this is something to watch out for. We, ha- we know we want to give our, ch- our children the best, but sometimes we make it too easy to the point where they don't appreciate it's a, it's, it's a fine line. It's, you know, tightrope. But with God's help, it's doable. So I don't say that the Bible says this is a fact always. I do say it does. there is this pattern that does exist, and we do well to steer clear. Verse 29, now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, they are, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? A rhetorical question, of course. This is not the Chronicles that we have in our Bible, because there's a reference to that one too elsewhere, and and this one is distinct. So uh, that's just other materials that were in existence then. Verse 30, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. Uh, As I mentioned, uh, Asa, the son of Rehoboam, or grandson, he'll he'll, he'll, um, get the upper hand. Verse 31, so Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Naamah, and Ammonitus, then Abijam, the son, his son reigned in his place. He's going to switch the tongue up, going from Naamah to Amoritus to Abijam. I mean, it's just all over the place. Uh, this weak king, Rehoboam, easily influenced to the negative. Once to the positive, but the rest he was to the negative. We read this about him in Chronicles. This is his epitaph in the scripture. Second Chronicles 12, verse 14. And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek Yahweh. Let's pray. Our Father, once again, real life stories, real examples, lessons there for us to either scoop up or neglect. May you find us scooping them up and doing something to your glory with them. May you get us all home safely tonight, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.